Welcome to Back From The Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Today, I'm going to do an episode answering listener questions with my friend Saj Razvi. And many of you remember Saj from the first season. And if you haven't listened to his two episodes, which are the healing trauma with psychedelics episodes, you got to go back and listen to those because those are extraordinary. But in any case, I invited Saj to answer some listener questions, and I think you're really going to enjoy this. But before we begin that, I wanted to read an iTunes review, which actually I think relates a lot to what we're talking about today. Now, a couple of my favorite podcasts uh, will ask guests, what have you changed your mind about? And I listen to those and I think, okay, I have to keep an open mind. I got to keep an open mind. What am I changing my mind about? Well, I have changed my mind about one thing for sure. And Saj is going to talk more about this. But from the first season... Some of you might remember the marijuana, the medical cannabis podcast I did. And that actually got the only negative iTunes review that I've gotten. And first of all, for everyone who's written an iTunes review, thank you so much. It's super meaningful. And gosh, there's such detailed, powerful stuff that, that, that those of you have said. So thank you. But let me, let me read this one. This was from, let's see, November 2019 by Spoondipity. I like that name, Spoondipity. It says, loved everything about this until the marijuana episode. I was recommended this podcast by my therapist while going through EMDR. I'm really enjoying it overall, but I just finished the marijuana episode and now I have doubts. The views were so outdated and incorrect. Please do not compare medical marijuana to medicinal vodka and think that I'm still going to value your insight on the subject. I recommend doing a lot more research, not from the 80s, and maybe revisiting this topic. Well, I didn't necessarily do a lot more research, but I hung out with Saj, and I think anybody who hangs out with Saj Razvi for a while is going to change their mind on at least something important, because he's such a fascinating, insightful guy. And so I have actually changed my mind about THC. So in the Marijuana Cannabis Podcast last year, I deeply questioned whether THC has any psychiatric use at all. I described it as a coping strategy and not necessarily negative as long as you don't have a psychotic illness or bipolar spectrum illness, but but not necessarily a treatment. But Saj has convinced me that there is actually at least one really interesting, powerful use of THC. And that is to help people go deep into their primary or somatic consciousness and do somatic trauma work. In the show notes for this episode, I um, put a link to a video of Saj doing this work with people, and it's pretty mind-blowing. It's not, it's not people like smoking weed to get high. This is people using powerful doses of THC to unleash the trauma within, and it's, it is something to, to behold. And so I have changed my mind on that. So I, I really appreciate that, that interview, Spoon Dippity, and I mean, sorry, that review, and I... Um, Yeah, I'm trying to keep my mind open, and yeah, I take it back. I do think uh, THC has at least one important use now in psychiatry, and that is for helping people release and work through deeply embedded, embodied trauma. I'll link in the show notes also to Saj Razvi's new project, which is called the Psychedelic Somatic Institute. They're doing some really cool things with cannabis and eventually with psilocybin once Europe opens up again. 
So I'm planning to do another episode later this year, Ask Me Anything, listener questions. So if you have anything that you want me to talk about, you can email me through craigheacockmd.com or you could send a message through our Twitter account, which is at BFTAPod, at BFTAPod. Well, I hope you enjoy this discussion with Saj and me. I know we really had a good time making it. Thanks. Um, but here's some questions, and we'll just jump in together, Saj. How do I tell the difference between a depressed client and a dissociated one? They can present so similarly. I feel like I probably missed dissociation way more than I should. You want to jump in on that? Sure. Um, I don't think you can tell the difference between a depressed client and a dissociated client. Uh, you know, d- depression is one of the features that we see as the uh, the body the uh, re- the body releases opioids as a response to in the, the the defense cascade. So it's one of those things where you know we're looking at symptoms and saying, oh well, this is depression or this is dissociation, and you know certainly depression is is on that on the spectrum of um, depression is on the spectrum of dissociation. So what I I would typically say to something like that is the same thing that I would say with when somebody presents and they have to say a bipolar two diagnosis, which is to say, okay, you've got this diagnosis. And you also have a pretty significant trauma history, right? So we don't know what can be coming from where, you know, whether the depression is coming from some other source or if the depression is coming from, you know, living life under threat. And so let's see what happens to it as we clear the um, uh, the, the traumatic charge. Let's see what happens to the depression. Mm-hmm. That, that would be my approach. To yeah. I wonder, one thing that I thought of when I read this question is <clears throat> I get the sense least for me that with dissociated patients i can't connect like i feel like i can connect with most of my depressed bipolar or major depression or whatever but there's something about folks who are deeply dissociated right they check all the boxes of clinical depression they look depressed but energetically i just can't i can't feel it you know i've you know i have a couple patients I see frequently who are very dissociated and I think like, gosh, they don't have much chi, you know, in sort of Eastern medicine sense, like they're just, or it's locked up or it's really stuck. Or I just, it's almost, it's like some of my dissociated patients, even sitting in the room, it's like they're on zoom. Mm. Like it's like a video chat, but they're in the room a few feet. I mean, do you ever feel that? Yeah. Yeah. I think I know what you're referring to. It's an energetic thing. Not uh-huh. yeah. It's not. I don't know if that's helpful to the listener, mm-hmm. but I do feel like even some of my most profoundly, say, depressed bipolar patients, like I can feel something. Mm-hmm. It, it may just be like dysphoric, horrific misery, but some of my, my real dissociated people that maybe I thought were depression was the the main thing, but as I got to know them, I realized, oh no, this is a total shut down as Mm -hmm. you talked about like a 10 milligram iv morphine endogenous just numbness and i can just feel that numbness and i think you know we as therapists you know we 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 use our bodies almost like a stethoscope we have to auscultate people and i think when we've sat with people long enough there's some i don't know my sense is you dissociation feels different Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, you may be you may encounter other forms of depression typically than I do, uh, simply because our practice has. I think we get a lot of people that have uh, depression based on uh, uh, 
circumstantial life events. Right. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Because I think you and I had that discussion a few years ago about can you have depression without trauma? And you do so much trauma work mm-hmm. that pretty much everyone you see has a found, you know, foundational damage, root damage, mm-hmm. and and things come out of that. Where I definitely have a subset of people who seemingly grew up in loving, stable, good homes, and for reasons of genetic bad luck or something, came down with a terrible psychiatric illness. Mm-hmm. How about this one? I feel like many of my current therapy approaches, uh, or sorry, I feel like many of the current therapy approaches, such as CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, that they ignore the crucial role of the unconscious in the therapeutic relationship. What are your thoughts on this? I would concur. <laughs> I would agree. Um, and I, I would say that not only do they ignore it in the in the therapeutic relationship, I think they ignore it in the in the uh, in the client mm-hmm. themselves. Uh, meaning that you know, uh, and and something like DBT, for example, I think ignores it on purpose because it's not a processing model. Right? DBT mm-hmm. is a new skill development model. It's mm-hmm. saying you know when you look at the populations that DBT is used for, sort of personality disordered access to clients, uh, frequently I should say it's used with that population. So we're, we're DBT is not looking to do any kind of processing there, and I can respect that approach. I can say okay. You know, there's so much going on here. Let's just find stability through building up of skill sets. However, I think of if you're going to have a sort of a full spectrum form of psychotherapy, uh, I, I think you need to acknowledge that there's other things going on within uh, a, a person other than, you know, sort of, you know, just their their conscious thoughts and behaviors. Yeah, and there's so much going on in us that you yeah. and I have talked about. The story I'm about to tell, but I remember in my residency at Brown, we had a psychodynamic seminar, two-part seminar on countertransference, sadism, and hatred. And we we read some papers, and I thought, what are these papers by these crazy old analysts about countertransference, sadism, and hatred? And talked about how the therapist or analyst will inevitably act out, sometimes very viciously and sadistically against the client's patients and I remember reading this and thinking, that is insane. And I, I asked the attending, and she said, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You, you all are going to hurt people, mostly unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, but yeah, some of the most vicious things you'll do to people are unconscious. So you better do some work on that now. Yeah, and, yeah um, absolutely. Yeah, the story that I, <laughs> I did, uh, yeah. The, fir- the first thing that happened in residency, actually the same year as that seminar, I was seeing a woman for weekly therapy and she's very damaged, traumatized, and she wouldn't talk to me. And I wanted to use my secondary consciousness talking skills <laughs> and she wouldn't talk to me. And so I would turn away from her and I would write notes and I would get on the internet and send emails because I thought, well, she doesn't want to talk to me. I'll do other work. I would write in charts and this went on for like three or four weeks. I hadn't been able to meet my supervisor. And then Maybe after three or four weeks of our battle, I said to her, I turned around from whatever sending emails. I said, well, it's clear that you don't want to talk to me. So maybe we should just see each other once or twice a year. And I had convinced myself that was a good idea because she didn't want to talk. She walked out of my office and put her fist through a gigantic, like 10 foot plate glass window. And then just walked down the hallway and left this bloody glass in front of my door. And and when, when I talked to my supervisor, she said, 
Hmm, did you get the what did you get, did you get the memo on countertransference sadism? She's like, you were acting out, and then it turned into a really interesting discussion of of projective identification. Surprise, surprise! This woman had a terrible trauma history. She turned me into the perpetrator. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to do was hurt her. I, I literally, in my conscious mind, I thought, okay, she won't talk to me. I've asked her a million questions. I've given her long periods of silence. I'm just going to get some work done. I'm just going to write some emails and, you know, and, and then eventually kind of fire her because, you know, logically, clearly, she's a, a terrible therapy patient. And my supervisor pointed out, yeah, that was sadistic and cruel, and that was your unconscious wanting to punish her. And she brought that out in you through her projective identification. Yeah. Okay. This is such rich material. <laughs> Thank you for sharing <laughs> can this. You be, can you be my therapist? So much? <laughs> I will say that, uh, you know, so let, just a quick definition for people that aren't in the inside baseball of this, right? Which is that transference is when you take the impulses and emotions and feelings and uh, memories that belong to a rela- uh, an unresolved relationship in the past and you're putting them onto your therapist or some other significant relationship in your in your present life, right? And so the thing that I always say about transference when we teach about it is that it never comes with a label on it that says, I'm transference, right? <laughs> it, never, it's, it feels real. It feels feels like you're having your natural responses uh, that you would always have. And it's not. It's a very powerful trance that can get induced uh, uh, in the client and in the therapist, right? So um, the fact that uh, graduate school education pretty much leaves us out entirely, I think, is is a significant loss to the field. And I think this is a major player when it comes to working with psychedelic medicines. Because, I mean, think about it. You're you're taking an incredibly deep dive into a person's psyche, into their primary consciousness where they're not in control, they're, uh, uh, they're dependent upon you for making sure they're safe, for guidance. I mean, it's a complete setup for uh, a parental transference to emerge in there. And, and it does, right? So these are all the, the memories that come out. And so I think um, the way that, I, that we t- uh, sort of teach about this is to say, look, your, your client is going to be handing you a role. Right. And the role can be it could be a very ugly role. It could be the role of a parent that didn't care about them. It could be the role of uh, somebody who just, you know, didn't wasn't attuned or, uh, or or it could even be worse than that. It could be the role of a perpetrator parent or somebody in their family that was a perpetrator. And so while you're doing psychedelic work. Uh, the client can start to have defensive reactions towards you as if you're going to abandon them or you're not going to be able to hold their process. Uh, you're not attuned to them or you're you're going to hurt them. And so this is, you know, this is, I think, very fraught territory, but also very, uh, thera- it's a fantastic therapeutic opportunity if you can hold it well and can work with it. Um, because it, look, the, the, that relationship is embedded inside the client's memory, right? That, that, that core relationship in their life is there. And where better for it to come out other than the, the therapy office as compared to sort of their relationship at home or something like that. Yeah. So we, we kind of welcome that. So, and you can welcome it by not denying it. Right, the client, the client system is kind of unpacking itself in the room, so it'll hand you this role, and if you just sit there in a neutral way and uh, sort of accept it and let them do this projective identification with you, then their system is going to turn on all these biological, physical responses towards you, 
or uh, t- towards towards that role, right? Mm-hmm. But if you if you, you can't hold it for some reason, uh, and many I think it, it is difficult to hold because again they're ugly roles, they're ugly relationships. Then and if you say no 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 I I I'm I'm on your side I care about you uh, you know I, I'm your therapist I'm your friend I'm you know, uh, then it's it's going to you're basically rejecting the charge mm-hmm. of that transfer. And so it doesn't get worked out in the room, but it's still there and it will get worked out someplace in the client's life. Yeah. Yeah. I think of my psychotherapy training, one of the most incredibly valuable things I've learned and I've had to relearn it over and over is that I'm at significant risk of unconsciously hurting people. And uh, I was thinking of another episode shortly after I moved to Fort Collins, I was working on an inpatient unit. I think I told you the story. I had a woman spit at me and threaten me on the acute unit. Really just awful. And I, (laughs) I don't mean to laugh. (laughs) I went and I wrote her orders and she had been on three milligrams of clonopin, clonazepam a day. And I said, DC, discontinue. And the nurse said, Dr. Hickok, do you really want to discontinue three milligrams of clonopin? I said, yeah, it's an addictive med and that's just not good for her. That's not a healthy med. And I had convinced myself like, oh yeah, we don't want this woman on three. Well, that's enough to actually have a grand mal seizure uh, if you stop it immediately. And the next day she had a grand mal seizure, thanks to me. And But what was so helpful, again, in my training was to think like, why did I do that? Mm-hmm. And I had convinced, you know, in my secondary consciousness, my frontal lobe, like, oh, it's an addictive med, it's bad for it's a controlled substance, she's kind of quasi-homeless, it's just not a good thing for her brain. Yeah, That was what I told myself. The underneath part of me is, F her, I want to make her suffer for spitting at me and threatening me. And yeah, I worry that we therapists and doctors who haven't had good training to remind ourselves that... Yeah, it's not just that you might consciously act out. In fact, that's actually not the scary. That the scary part is that when we unconsciously act out, either because the patient's bringing that on or it's they're just pushing our buttons. So I try to m- remind myself of that frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I worry about people coming out of programs uh, just with sort of upper level um, executive functioning thoughts or behaviors, yeah. but not you know, learning to do, you know, hold up the mirror and look into ourselves and asking ourselves, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Yeah. I I think if you think that you are your conscious mind, that you are your story, you are your values and your belief systems, there's a lot more to you. (laughs) I'll just say there's, I think, I think that's bordering delusional. (laughs) Yeah. I think Uh, what we learned in in Westworld is actually we're just our backstory, right? (laughs) <laughs> ah, okay. I haven't thought. Um, hey, by the way, I do want to say something about what you just shared, Craig, mm-hmm. which is that I think there are plenty of doctors that would have done something or have done what you just described there, acting out maliciously. I don't think there's many doctors that actually say that they've done that. So I think it's very, I just want to say it's really refreshing to hear a doctor say, oh, yeah, this, this, this uh, is, this happens. <laughs> and this is true. Well, because, right, because we can hurt people by, making mistakes, just honest mistakes. We can make people, we can hurt people by consciously deciding to, but I guess one of the things I'm really wanting to explore here is I think much of the harm comes from unconscious. Mm -hmm. And yeah, thank you for, for um, your words on that. But gosh, if we don't admit our conscious and unconscious mistakes and acting out, how are we ever going to move forward? 
yeah, I'm sure I will hurt someone again. I'm trying hard not to. <laughs> I am, but we are complicated cats, and you know, we 99 of us is underneath the surface. You know, so gosh, we have to be so careful about yeah. how we act because you know, so often we act and then we justify. Maybe that's actually happening all the time. <laughs> you know, we we act. Oh, I really reasoned that through, but no, usually we just act. Yeah, and we're running on all these you know, subterranean unconscious programs, which we, you know, after the fact, pat ourselves in the back. Oh, we, we did the right thing. Mm, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say that when, when we're training people to work with psychedelic medicines and work in primary consciousness, you know, the, the skill sets are, are significant. They're not rocket science, but they're significant to learn. But, you know, if you've gone through graduate school, you can pick these up. I would say that the most difficult part for, for clinicians doing that level of work is really clearing out their own systems. Mm-hmm. It, you know, the, the things that you can have uh, uh, unworked and compromised in your system when you're doing talk therapy, you just cannot have that when you're doing psychedelic work. Yeah. Because the client's system is asking so much more of you. Right, yeah. they're they're asking uh, to be reparented in ways, and if your your parenting is off, if your attachment style is off, you're not going to be able to offer things that the client system is actually asking, and they're going to really notice it. Yeah, <laughs> which, I th- no- <laughs> which I think begs the question: Can you be a safe and effective psychedelic therapist and not have done a background level, at least you know, master's level training in psychotherapy? Because you know, there's a lot of people I hear saying to me, oh, I want to just go kind of jump right to working with these medicines Mm -hmm. and just kind of skip that whole pain in the butt graduate school path. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think the the way that we've articulated is like, I think, you know, psychedelics are are vast and they do different things in different contexts. And if you're looking to, you know, have a recreational experience with psychedelics or a communal, mystical, spiritual experience with psychedelics, I think those are different paths. If, however, you're looking to uh, work with mental health conditions, if you're looking to work with trauma and depression, things like that, I think that requires a lot more than a sitter. Mm-hmm. Right? So, mm-hmm. I, th- I, th- I mean, we're, we're not just talking about a psychedelic process taking place. We're talking about some of the most sort of charged and complicated things that can happen in, in terms of, a, of the human psyche that, that are coming out in the, into the room yeah. at this yeah. point. Yeah. Here's another question. Um, Do you see psilocybin as more of a trauma treatment or a depression treatment? I see that. I see it as both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think uh, the way it's being looked at uh, in the U.S. is as a depression treatment. I, from what I've seen at, um, you know, in our Amsterdam program, you can absolutely work like ex- <laughs> you can work levels of trauma with it that you can't work with something like uh, cannabis or MDMA. Mm-hmm. Right. So the way that I describe the difference here is that, you know, w- tier one is cannabis, MDMA, ketamine, and they work with the events in a person's life. They work with the sort of the highly charged, overwhelming, uh, neglectful, traumatic events in a person's life. 
once we see that a, a person's sort of core foundational nervous system is has integrity to it, right? Their their biological foundation is there. Then I think sort of psilocybin can step in. And the reason why I say that is because psilocybin asks a lot more of the client than I think either MDMA or uh, cannabis asks, right? So psilocybin challenges or it works with the fabric of reality that gets created around these events it works with the very sense of you that got created in response to the events in your life and i think uh, mdma and cannabis don't do that they don't challenge the i that was created but certainly psilocybin absolutely it does Mm -hmm. and and i think that's why it needs a much more foundational level of support and stability before your system can say, yeah, I can, I can open to this level of challenge that this medicine is bringing to me. Yeah. yeah. I'm really interested to see as psilocybin comes online for depression, how we'll see differential efficacy between say, you know, medium to high dose psilocybin session in nature versus sort of the eye shades music versus an interpersonal, like, mm-hmm. so these diff- very different contexts. Because, you know, potentially one of the things that psychedelics can do, and psilocybin in particular, is to rekindle that sense of wonder and awe. Yeah. At just the beauty of the world. And, boy, if that isn't a, one of the core sort of psychological deficits of depression, it's just losing that. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, this research is mostly being done in, rooms you know and eye shades or not out in nature but i think that'll be really interesting to, to when they try to tease out the if you will sort of the neurochemical effects of psilocybin on on serotonin 2a and default mode network and you know maybe neurogenesis versus having an experience that's powerfully context shifting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um I think we're we're in the same ballpark though when we're talking because I think when I, I spent the day with the Johns Hopkins psilocybin team uh, a year or two ago, and uh, they were looking at um, you know they're looking at it for depression and the model that they're really working with is Carhart Harris's model of the entropic brain, and so their their senses you know I asked them well where would you put your money <laughs> when it comes to like what what where is depression coming from, and they were like yeah we think it's the entropic brain model which is that. Mm-hmm you know, an over-functioning default mode network, uh, rigidified ego structure, uh, lack of openness to the world, lack of openness to experience, you know, just general rigidification. And uh, I think psilocybin, even if it's not used in a um, sort of a guided way to deal with the the, the traumatic events and the personality structure that got created in response to those events, if it's just used as a, as a biochemical response, I think it'll still be pretty effective at breaking mm-hmm. down the default mode network. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 And along those lines, you know, I did an episode last year on um, depression as a final common pathway. And this idea that depression is a syndromic description, but not really a thing you know there's bipolar depression and grief depression and ptsd driven depression and hypogonadal depression and i'm really interested to see you know when psilocybin addresses depressive symptoms are there specific causal kinds of depressions or that are most affected because like with ketamine as i've talked about on this podcast clearly bipolar depression is a home run with ketamine. So the people in the sort of hypersomnic, seasonal worsening, 
lethargic, hibernating depression, like ketamine is just amazingly effective with those people. But super anxious, kind of generalized anxiety-driven depression, ketamine doesn't seem as effective. But it'll be really interesting to see with psilocybin, is it just like overall brain reset fertilizer that will help anyone that reaches you know a depressive state? Or is it going to be particularly good for grief-driven or trauma-driven or MDD-driven or you know, and I think that's one of the things that's so difficult about these studies is they're studying something, quote unquote, treatment resistant depression, which is not a thing. You know, it's like saying treatment resistant leg pain. Well, part of the reason leg you might have treatment resistant leg pain is because we don't know what's causing the leg pain. <laughs> so, um, so uh, you know, that's a real limitation in so many of these studies is we're talking about something you know, even major depressive disorder, which most psychiatrists agree is not even a thing. It's a wastebasket diagnosis for depression that doesn't fit in other neat categories. Here's a related question. I'm curious. I have some th- thoughts on this too, but let's, let's start with you, Sash. Is MDMA a treatment for depression? Now, it's being studied for PTSD, and you know, a lot of people know about that use, but is it a, actually a treatment for depression? Hey, what are your thoughts? Again, I, I think there's a big overlap between uh, the uh, depression, at least that I see, and PTSD. So in that sense, yeah, it is a treatment for depression, depression being a symptom of PTSD. But uh, is it directly a de- treatment for depression? I'm, I can't speak to that. Mm-hmm. Um, or, uh, you know, how, does it, to what extent it, it, it dissolves the default mode network and it can do the same thing that we were just talking about with the Hopkins team? Yeah. Yeah. My hunch is that we're going to find much like you said, that depression that's coming out of trauma, it can be a a really effective treatment, but other kinds of depression, no. And it kind of makes sense. Even if you think of the molecular structure, it's an amphetamine base. If we look at how people typically feel a day or two after MDMA sessions, they typically don't, wouldn't say they feel energetic and great. Whereas I've, had people um, with significant depression who, for example, inadvertently took psilocybin with a friend, not as a depression treatment, but they came back and you know, this was even years ago. People said, Hecock, is, are mushrooms a depression treatment? Because I was with some old friends and we took a couple grams and I felt a lot better for the last few weeks. I and mean, I've heard many reports of that. I've yeah. never heard anyone say that with MDMA, with MDMA yeah. that they say, oh, I was you know, with some friends, took MDMA and my depression got better. I would agree with I've that. I've never yeah. heard that. Yeah. So, yeah, my sense is it really matters what's causing a depression. Again, so much depression is trauma-related. But if that's not the heart of it, it's probably not not, Mm -hmm. going to happen. One last question I wanted to uh, bring up. Someone asked about how do you begin to move patients, clients out of dissociation? So we've been talking about kind of advanced levels. You know, you're using some of these medicines, but what about just the clinician therapist who's sitting with someone who like they're clearly in dissociative state? And how do you think yeah. about the, the beginning steps of that? Great, great. Um, 
Well, I would say, first of all, remember that dissociation, as we're defining it, is a implicit biological process. It's not something that the client has control over, right? They're not, there's no voluntary uh, thing that's going on here. Uh, and I think what, how we see it is that the processing of, depre- uh, of dissociation requires a couple of initial conditions to be in place before you begin something like that. Like, for example, somebody needs to be safe, right? They need to be out of... So uh, remember, uh, let me back up one step even more. The thing that created dissociation uh, is some level of overwhelming threat, right? And so the, the person who has it has to be removed from, from that kind of threat. They have to be relatively stable, relatively safe in their life. So, but that's just an initial condition. That's not the, the going to do the processing. They also uh, have to have resources, right? They have to have uh, emotional, psychological resources. They have to have the ability to feel good, things like that. There's, you need a little buffer in the bank account, as it were. And then finally, I would say the third thing is uh, you need to, um, there, there's a sense of, if the threat were to return, uh, you need to have a sense of solution for it. Because if you don't have a solution for it, remember, the, the primary consciousness mind doesn't conceive of time, right? So when threats exist for primary consciousness, it could be present moment threats, or it could have been threats that happened to you in infancy. And But that part of your mind isn't going to know that this threat is no longer there. So the more that a person realizes that, wait a minute, it you know, if, if this happened to me tomorrow, I could deal with it much better. Or even if it, it can't happen to me tomorrow, I think those are all three of those are the initial conditions necessary for processing. But once those are in place, what we have people do is essentially um, ally with the dissociation, right? And what I mean by that is you have people sort of notice and, you know, you let them dissociate and you uh, and they take you with them into the dissociation. So, mm-hmm. and you're not challenging it. You're not, you know, trying to pull them out of it, talk them out of it. You're just saying, oh, great, we'll describe what's happening to me now. And they'll describe, well, I feel floaty. I feel like, um, you know, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in, there's like... Uh, a cloud around me or um, I can't feel anything. And you're like, okay, good. So tell me what's good about that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so they're basically the more that they can witness and describe to you and stay with that dissociative process, the more it will shift from dissociation to uh, depression, uh, Mm -hmm. hopelessness, heaviness, uh, collapse, which you would think that this is, this is not a good thing to have happen, but it's, you know, they're moving from, from non-existence to back into the world of feeling when, when that shift takes place. Yeah. Yeah. So it's essentially a being with the dissociation. Yeah. So it's becoming more mindful, more aware, and then encouraging more dissociation, like going deeper in it to go through it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, it's surprising. It's kind of a dirty trick, I guess, because like because they're they're pretty convinced that this place that they're in is very rock solid. They have no power in it or anything, and it's never going to move. But you know, people will again. Uh, dissociation looks can look a lot of different ways, you know. But let's say we're just talking about that that um, respite feeling, that feeling of like that non feeling, actually. And if they're just witnessing it long enough, eventually, well, they'll say something like, uh, but. I guess I'm, it's a little lonely in here, right? Mm-hmm. Because again, when you're dissociated, you're not having relationship either, 
right? You're in there alone. It's like being in a cave at the bottom of the sea. And eventually when people start getting information into that cave that there's some downside to it, or they're starting to getting some sensation into that cave with them, like, uh, like they're feeling heavy or awful or something like that. That's great news. So you just kind of gently just say, okay, let's keep going with this. See mm-hmm. where it goes. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. yeah. I love that, that this idea that even though people in dissociation came to that through a traumatic state, you're not pathologizing it, you're recognizing it as, oh yeah, this is what your body did to keep yeah. you safe and put you in this sort of numbed chamber to keep you safe and we're, we're going to go with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. And it is, it is complicated, right? Because again, if like, uh, if dissociation was the only safe place that a person found in their childhood, it's like, you know, that's, you're, you're asking them to undo, you know, the thing that worked for them really well mm-hmm. in their childhood. And, and it's great that they had that, but it's, there's a huge price to pay for people who lived a, a childhood or live a life in dissociation. Uh, you know, again, relationship or being responsive in the world or feeling the world are the, you know, very big price to pay for, for that kind of safety. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com, where you can learn more about us and this project, get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes, as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson, who does our sound. And thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness.